when we look at Old Testament stories, our tendency is to ask, how am I like Moses? Or how am I like Aaron? And the best place that we can place ourselves in those stories is to ask, how am I like Israel? Um, The ones that I want to say, you guys are morons, like pull it together. And that's usually the seat that I'm sitting in. So why does God have to say, there are no other gods? Because the human heart is always looking for something else to worship. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Jen Wilkin. Jen is a well-known speaker and a teacher of women's Bible studies. She's also the author of a number of books, including 10 Words to Live By, Delighting in and Doing What God Commands, from Crossway. Today, Jen and I discuss a well-known, yet, according to Jen, often misunderstood and misapplied section of Scripture, the Ten Commandments. She explains why the Ten Commandments are more interesting and more applicable than we might think. What's wrong with the way we often talk about the law and the dangers of legalism? And what it really means to take the Lord's name in vain? Let's get started. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast again. Oh, thanks for having me on. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the Ten Commandments. Uh, but before we get into that, my guess is that there are probably some people listening right now who might already be thinking, huh, an interview about the Ten Commandments. I know where this is going. Uh, maybe this this feels a little bit uh, simple. Uh, we've all heard this before. So tell tell them why they might be wrong about that. Yeah, I do think that there is a temptation to look at the Ten Commandments as like this checklist where most of us get somewhere between a C and an A, depending mm-hmm. on the kind of life that we lived. <laughs> and, um, and of course, like any other portion of Scripture, when we spend time meditating on it, it just begins to grow in its depth and in its application. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that often, uh, I would say in, in a lot of the circles that I inhabit, there's been so much conversation about grace, which we really, really need. Um, But also sometimes at the expense of conversation about law, like what do we do with the law? And so I think we can look at the Ten Commandments not just as um, maybe something we've given like a pass passing thought to Mm -hmm. and feel like, okay, I'm good there. And also Jesus. So I'm good there, you know, but instead of thinking, wait a minute, how do these actually impact my life today? Like, um, how did they impact the way that the community functioned, uh, the community of Israel? And, and what are the implications for how the church functions today? So I think just both that individual question of application and then also that corporate question, like how might how might the church function mm. as it should if we really saw these as um, not just something to think about, but something to uh, live according to so that we might look like the children of God. Mm. Yeah, my experience, even in my own life, has been, yeah, sometimes it's easy to think of the Ten Commandments as, you know, on the one hand, they're this historical thing that we maybe should know about. They're in mm-hmm. the Bible. They're obviously important in mm-hmm. the Bible. And we maybe have a sense of, like, they should inform how we live because they feel so universal. Mm-hmm. And yet then we also are wrestling through... but. The New Testament seems to say some mm-hmm. things about the law, and 
what about grace and what about Jesus? And yeah. he kind of almost replaces them in some way. Have you ever struggled with that dynamic? Well, I hear it articulated a lot. In fact, it's fascinating to me that we're almost to a point where if you talk about obedience to the law at mm. all, someone cries legalism immediately. Yeah. I was in a conversation even a few weeks back where we were talking about the wisdom literature and the statement was made by one of the people in the conversation. Well, we have to be careful when we talk about the wisdom literature that we don't stumble into moralism. And uh, so I thought that was so revealing. I mean, here are these important books of the Old Testament, and you know, then there are passages in the New Testament, the book of James, that are telling us uh, essentially how to live God's way in God's world, but we're afraid to talk about them because people will think that we're moralists. Mm. So where do you think that comes from, that sensitivity, maybe oversensitivity to this boogeyman of legalism? What's behind that? Well, I think that we know that the law is bad when we are unbelievers, right? The law is the reason that we stand condemned before God because we've failed to keep it. And so as relates to our justification, the law is a heavy burden that crushes us. But what we often forget is the follow through Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the question of our sanctification and how does the law function in our sanctification. And the thing that hung over us as a heavy, unbearable burden before now lies beneath our feet as the path of righteousness. And it becomes for us, ironically, or or in an unexpected way, actually a means of grace. Mm. So it's not opposed to grace in the life of the believer, it actually helps us graciously to know what pleases God and and shows us the character of the God that we're trying to please. Not because we're going to earn, right? It's not about earning any kind of favor. That's what the legalist wrongly believes. And, And I think the funny part about that is people think that legalists are the best at obeying the law. But legalists are actually lawbreakers because they break the first command, for example, by placing the law as a god before God himself. Um, They break the second command because they fashion themselves into law abiders who are actually comparable to God himself. Mm. Uh, and, And then they break the third command. They take the Lord's name in vain, you could argue, by taking this law that illustrates his character and using it in a way that doesn't illustrate his character at all. Yeah. Well, and Jesus made that point with the Pharisees and Mm -hmm. the scribes in the Gospels. He, He talked about people... Uh, ignoring the weightier matters of the law in mm-hmm. favor of these these small things. Mm-hmm. I want to get back into that in a little bit, but one of the things you say in your book that I thought was really interesting and um, yeah, maybe, again, a little bit surprising is you call, you call uh, the book itself an exercise in remembrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, in the in the second uh, articulating of the Ten Commandments that's found in Deuteronomy, um, you get this little retelling where where uh, Moses is telling the people, you know, on that day at Sinai, you were terrified and you asked me to go talk to God in your place because you believed that you would die if you if you had to interact with Him face to face. And so there's this whole fear of the Lord language, right, about um, how Israel felt. And then and then you hear from God, like you get His side of the story at yeah. that point in. Deuteronomy. And rather than God saying, and you know, why were they afraid of me? All I wanted was relationship with them. God says, oh, that they would have feared me always. Mm-hmm. And then and, and, and this, that they would have remembered this, you know. And, and so I think that um, when we forget the Ten Commandments, we are forgetting the the fear of the Lord, the right reverent honor that is due to the Lord, um, that that God has given these um, commands to us 
to show us what pleases him and that those who love him will want to please him, a joyful obedience out of gratitude. Mm. So I think in previous generations, especially when looking at the full sweep of church history, the Ten Commandments were something that many, many Christians memorized, mm-hmm. you know, studied, uh, even at a very young age. Um, your mom, you've got kids. Uh, it seems like that that kind of thing is not as common among, we'll say, American evangelicals, families and uh, parents and children mm-hmm. uh, today as it, as it once was. So why do you think that is? Why are the Ten Commandments so often viewed as this sort of, I don't know, not that important to study or to, to understand. Yeah, well, I think actually the the example that you've given frames up the problem probably pretty clearly. Uh, I would say that the previous generation of parents uh, leaned more toward authoritarianism, mm. and our current generation of parents leans heavily toward relationship. And there is a predomin- there is a dominating sense that rules prohibit relationship. Mm. I hear it in so many conversations that I have with young parents. Uh, And so there's a lot of wanting to give children grace, or at least what we call grace. Sometimes it's because we we just don't want to follow through on the penalty because it feels like, oh, if I punish them, then they won't like me. It will take away from relationship. And so we withhold the rules because we think that they are going to tear down the relational capital that we have built with our children. Um, But the reality is that rules don't actually prohibit relationship. They're the basis for healthy relationship. Mm. Um, And so uh, if the pendulum has swung heavily toward the relational component of parenting, um, then that can be the blind spot that we're dealing with. And, And I think that for a generation of parents who have swung that direction because they think of parenting as authoritarian, they're more likely to regard the Ten Commandments mm. as um, as something that they don't want to, to, to have be top of mind for them yeah. because it will actually make them dislike God instead yeah. of want relationship with God. Yeah, they want to they want to protect their kids' view of God, mm-hmm. but in doing so, they're they're actually short circuiting. Well, and again, we come back to the question of moralism, like. Um, uh, so uh, in my current role at my church, I have responsibility for our children's area. And um, and there has been in, in recent years a, a concern about not teaching moralism to children. Well, by all means, let's not make them moralists. But we do actually want them to be moral. Mm. And so when we pit mor- when we when we think that moralism is our only option and we we overlook the fact that morality actually has a synonym that's important for us to understand. Morality's synonym synonym is Christ-likeness. Then we would be foolish to withhold from our children a picture of morality because morality is saying this is is the way, walk in it. Um, And so I think that factors into it is we're not, but I, I I don't think it's so much that people don't like the Ten Commandments, like they get it. They're in the Bible. Like yeah. it must have all scriptures, <laughs> God breathed and profitable, but they're just not sure what to do yeah, with them right. because they've heard so much anti-law um, speech, yeah. uh, and, which is appropriate with regard to our justification. Um, and so then, of course, I think the follow-up question is relates to the children's ministry question is, well, we don't know if children are saved or not. Mm-hmm. I'm a Baptist, so bear with me for a moment. <laughs> we don't know if children are saved or not. So what if we give them morality and they never see Christ? Yeah, right. But there are absolutely ways to speak of what is moral and right and point people to Christ at the same time. Mm. There would have to be. Yeah. Well, and Scripture does that. Scripture models that for us, but often it feels like we 
we, we lack the nuance that Scripture itself is mm-hmm. calling us to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get into then some of those passages that in particular can be a bit challenging for Christians to understand in the New Testament. So uh, there are passages that seem to suggest that, that maybe on a surface level or, or with a simple understanding, uh, that maybe the law is not relevant for Christians today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, Romans 5.20, Paul writes, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or there's a, a later passage, Romans 6.14, where he writes, for sin will have no dominion over you, for you were once under law, mm-hmm. but now you're under grace. So again, many Christians read those verses as saying that the Bible itself is in some way pitting law and grace against one another. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to that? Uh, I would say that Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And that in uh, in the epistles of John, John says repeatedly, and this is love, that we keep his commandments. And so... Um, that is uh, actually, I think what we're seeing relates to my my old hobby horse about Bible literacy. If we only pull these certain passages out uh, and we are not mindful of the other passages mm. that are saying something else, then we can gain an unbalanced view of what the role of the law is. I believe that John and Jesus in the in the passages I just mentioned are referring to our sanctification. Uh, if you love God, then you're already one of his children. And so the law becomes a blessing to you and a marker that you are one of his children. Um, but for those who are uh, in opposition to God, the law is always going to be their enemy because it will constantly show that they are lawbreakers. Mm. But I, I would also say that if you pay attention to the patterns of speech in the New Testament, you find that the language that is used, and actually in the Old Testament as well, the language that is used to describe those who are opposed to God is the language of the lawless man, the man who is without law. And so uh, lawfulness then would be understood to be a marker of those who want to serve and please the one true God. Mm. So I do think it's important for us to think about the difference between the law's role in our justification and in our sanctification, but also to keep in view that um, that the law, even in the life of the believer, does point out our sin to us still, right? I mean, it did yeah. so with no hope of restoration when we were unbelievers, but in the life of the believer, it is, it is a gracious thing to us that the law still reveals to us um, how we might... Um, be falling short Mm. in in pleasing God and how there still remains in us sin um, to be confessed and repented of and turned from. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned Bible literacy. It's kind of a hobby horse of yours. So I wonder if you can (laughs) hop on that horse for a minute and and connect it to that, because that seems to be part of the issue is that we sometimes don't know how to read our Bibles rightly to make sense of things that perhaps on the surface feel like they are slightly in tension or contradictory even. So unpack that a little bit for us. What what do you mean by Bible literacy, and why is that relevant here? Well, um, many of us have have sort of deferred our understanding of the Bible to to a secondhand source. So uh, depending on what preacher is your favorite or what theologian is your favorite, you may have un- inadvertently been exposed to an emphasis on a particular idea um, that is not representative of the amount of emphasis that the Bible places on it. 
that's not the fault of the person that you're listening to. Uh, like one of the things that I will probably run the risk of as I pass on into um, the the shadows of time is that people might read the things I wrote and think that all I cared about mm. was sanctification yeah. and, the, and, the, and the threefold use of the law or, or all I cared about was the attributes of God or all I cared about was Bible literacy. People reduce things down mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and any any person who um, sets out to teach the scriptures um, prays and hopes, but realizes that it's probably not a, a very um, likely hope that the listener has a grasp of the story of the Bible from beginning to end, that they have an under, a firsthand understanding of how often the Bible speaks about uh, law and grace or where or in what ways so that what what we can do all any of us can do in the time that the lord gives us to to serve the church is to say in this time in which i'm living where has the emphasis been placed on the wrong syllable and how <laughs> might i try to course correct yeah, for that yeah. uh, and then let me teach what's true also yeah. in addition you know it, as my general overarching hope uh, and so um i think that uh when people don't have a sense of where, as one of my friends um, talks about it, the hot spots are in the Bible. Like, what are the things that get talked about a lot? And then what are the things that get talked about occasionally? Um, then then we can tend to latch on to something and think um, it's the most important thing when actually the Bible is not talking about it mm. with the level of importance that we have placed on it. Yeah. It's interesting how when people, as you said, are trying to address the... the uh, the things that are not being rightly understood in the mm-hmm. in the current culture or the context yeah. that you're in, ironically, that can kind of lead to the same thing happening again, right? Where because of that, because they're addressing a specific thing that needs to be addressed right now, mm-hmm. that next generation say yeah. sort of reads them in without understanding that broader context that was at play there. So, how do you how have you thought about that even personally in your own ministry and work, where um, there are things that you see right now that you feel like need to be addressed broadly, uh, but then also trying to be true to even the emphases or the, the focus of scripture itself and what mm-hmm. it's uh, making uh, important. Have you had, had to wrestle through that at all in your own ministry? Definitely. I think that uh, my hope has always been that whatever ministry I have to the big C church is an overflow of my ministry in the local church. And so, and that's my first responsibility far and away is that when I am teaching that women's Bible study at my church on a weekly basis, that's where we can do all the hard work of, you know, I want you to know this. I want you to know where the emphases lie. Uh, But often the things that, that move from my, my local church ministry to a big C church platform are, are the emphases that I've seen mm. that maybe need to be highlighted. Yeah. And so there is always that thought of, oh, I wonder if people are going to are gonna understand that I'm actually a Bible teacher. Like, that's my thing. I'm a Bible teacher. I may talk about other things, but that's <laughs> that's really my thing is yeah. to just say, here, take and read and, and, and to give people tools to be able to read it better themselves. But in the course of that, there are observations, there are patterns that I see. And sometimes they may be more unique to my own setting mm. You know, in the Bible Belt or um, in an area that's suburban and has a lot of um, families that at least on the surface are are a maintenance of the of the nuclear family. Um, But I do think that um, I can only do I would not want to speak into situations that I don't know. Mm. 
And so you place these things out there open-handedly and pray that they're useful mm. and, and that people have, um, <laughs> this is a big hope, the critical thinking skills to know how to take the meat and spit out the bones yeah. from what you're giving them. Yeah. Is your sense, how would you assess the, I know this is a, a broad category uh, and it's hard to generalize at times, but how would you assess the Bible literacy of the, the American church in general? I think we're in a full-blown Bible literacy crisis. And I, I am careful to use the term Bible literacy instead of biblical literacy, mm. not because I don't think both terms are useful, but because biblical literacy is something that people can sometimes lay claim to in the sense that they know about the Bible. Mm. <laughs> uh, Bible literacy is saying, do you read your Bible? Like, can you, could you pass a simple pop quiz yeah. over factual information? So think of it like when you were in high school English class and you were reading uh, the Odyssey, could you pass a pop quiz just over who the names of the people were and what happened in a particular chapter? And that is the piece that we are just missing on a grand scale. People are eager to talk about interpretation. They are obsessed with talking about application but many of them have done none of the work of comprehension, of just being in the Bible, mm. learning what it says, thinking about how one section of the text connects to the one that came before and points to the one that's coming after, asking questions like, if this chapter weren't in the Gospel of Matthew, what would the Gospel of Matthew be missing? Mm. Um, just some simple questions. And one of the things that's been really interesting to see start to appear over the last several years is um, pushback around the idea that we should be literate readers of the Bible, because it sounds to some ears like we're talking about almost like Gnosticism, like you have to have some special knowledge yeah, to be right. able to read the Bible. But really, the request is not that you would become a literature professor in your study of the Bible. It's that you would read the Bible as you read any other book, just paying attention to the normal things that you would pay attention to reading any book. And that's what's interesting to see begin to develop because it's I think it's revealing what we would all probably acknowledge to be true, that we don't just have a Bible literacy crisis. We have a literacy crisis. So at least in my experience, but I think talking to other Christians, uh, they have resonated with this feeling that... Um, we all know the human heart is deceitful. Our own hearts mm -hmm. are deceitful. And when it comes to that issue of distinguishing between legalism or moralism on the one hand and morality and lawfulness on the other hand, uh, it can sometimes be a little bit hard to even assess our own hearts and our own motivations when we think about you know, our call to obey God's law as Christians. Mm -hmm. And we can easily uh, maybe even trick ourselves into thinking that mm -hmm. we're doing something because of our relationship with Christ rather than for our relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. So how have you thought about that? Have you ever wrestled with that, uh, that, you know, deceitfulness of the human heart? Yeah. And I think that that's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount when he takes the law and he presents it from his perspective as he's saying, you can do the right things but you can do the right things for the wrong reasons and the right things done for the wrong reasons are still the wrong things. Mm -hmm. I would qualify that to say that given the choice between doing the right thing for the wrong reason and doing the wrong thing, 
it is still better for society as a whole if people do the right thing, even if they haven't yet developed the right motive. Mm, yeah. But in the believer, because the Spirit indwells us, I think that we cannot fairly say that we have no recognition of the wrong motive. Initially, we may not. And I think that the Spirit is kind to show us only what we can bear in the increment in which we can receive it, which is why over the course of our lifetimes, we keep discovering new ways that we have exercised <laughs> wrong motives, even right. when we had right behavior. Right. Um, but I do think that the Spirit does convict us in the inner man. And so uh, many of us, those of us who were legalists in our former lives, now do have to battle um, the temptation to obey because it will curry favor maybe not with God, but with others who will look at us and go, you're just so amazing, you're so holy, and all that. Um, and I do think that for for that person, there can be years of mixed motive because the Spirit is still at work purifying our motives. But, um, you know, let's take the Sixth Commandment, for example. It is still better to not murder, even if you wanted to, than it is to... Uh, than to say, well, you know, I had to get my motives yeah. right before I decided not to kill yeah. somebody. <laughs> Might as well just do it because yeah. I wasn't really feeling it. Yeah, which is the thing, right, with the, you know, the Ten Commandments have formed the basis for, for most modern law yeah. codes uh, and, and just about every civilization, or at least everyone I know of, would acknowledge that murder is wrong and that stealing are wrong. Why? Because they're bad for the community. And so uh, motive matters. It, it matters uh, in the life of the believer um, certainly. I mean, that's the whole the whole game. Um, but but for the unbeliever, it matters that morality be present in society. And so on one level, I want people to not murder because they love God. On another level, I want people to not murder whether they, whether they ever love God or not. And so it's good for the children of God to embody this and to value this and to vote according to this. Mm. You know, we should be thinking about how we can influence the culture around us according to God's good law, because yeah. it's not just good for the family of believers. It's good for everyone. Um, that's the second use of the law, mm. to use the language of the catechism, that it's a rod. It, it shows us um, how to measure um, what is good for people and what is bad for people. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump into some of the commandments. So we can't talk about all of them in detail, obviously. But, what? Okay. But we'll, uh, we'll pick a few <laughs> out, maybe even some that uh, might feel the most straightforward. But I think as uh, you helpfully uh, said right when we started, that as we kind of dig into the text of Scripture, we often find there's mm -hmm. a lot more to it than we realize. Uh, so the first commandment, one that you summarize as undivided allegiance. And I, I think it's one that seems so basic and obvious, and yet... Um, one thing I've always noted uh, is that in the Bible, you, you see the story of Israel. Uh, mm -hmm. They constantly disobey this first commandment, mm -hmm. you shall have no other gods before <laughs> me. And it feels to us like such a, maybe an obvious duh. thing, like, duh, like, how could you do that? You've seen him do these wonderful, miraculous works in their midst, delivered mm -hmm. them out of Egypt, and yet they continually turn to these other gods around them. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe help our readers. Uh, obviously, we're not, we're not, typically in an American context, tempted to worship other idols, uh, other statues at least, mm -hmm. in the way that mm -hmm. Israel uh, often did. Uh, so how does this commandment speak and even confront us today? 
Well, the context matters for, for how this command is stated. I think that we've heard the first command out of context so much mm. that it does seem simplistic. Um, but when you place it in Israel's history, you recognize that the, this is an idea that, although it's certainly present from Genesis chapter 1, that 400 years of slavery in a polytheistic land would have obscured for mm. them. Um, this is monotheism yeah. being clearly articulated at the outset. And it's obviously serves as a as an umbrella command for all of the ones that are going to follow. If you get this one right, you're way more likely to get the rest right. And they all pre- proceed from this one. Um, but it is a statement of there is one God. Which would have been very countercultural. Very countercultural. And they're going to need it. The reason it's reiterated in Deuteronomy is because... Now they're heading into Canaan, which is also polytheistic. So they're in the in-between space with they've just come out of polytheism and they're heading into polytheism. And um, the books of Genesis and Exodus, uh, actually the, the whole Pentateuch, is written to give Israel roots and shoots to say this is where you came from and 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 this is how you will grow in in the land that i'm giving did, you did you come up with that roots and shoots that's no really good. i think i think i'm ripping it off from jam voice but i'd have to go back and check the commentary <laughs> that's really a great oh listen metaphor. if i say anything profound you can know i stole it <laughs> uh so so speaking of yeah um the ten commandments stealing um so here they are at this pivotal moment where they need to understand that there is only one God. And I think that's what we miss because what the 10 plagues have just done is they have been set up to topple specific gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Mm. Like they represent, you know, Heket is the frog goddess of fertility. There is the, there's the death penalty in Egypt if you kill a frog. Uh, and so... What does God do? He slays frogs in the mm, thousands. Wow. They're, they're heaping and stinking piles everywhere. You can't avoid them. You're going to have to t- shovel them out of your home. And so each of the ten plagues is saying there is no God but Yahweh. Yeah. This, is the, this is a great case study and the value of biblical literacy because right. you're not going to know that. I, I know, I've read those before and just you can feel like this feels so random. Frogs. Why are there yeah. frogs everywhere? What's, the, what's going on with that? But there actually is a real significant reason for that. Yeah, absolutely. And so you get to the end of the 10 plagues, which P.S. happened 50 days before the 10 commandments are given. Okay. So you've got 10 plagues of death. And then at Sinai, 10 words of life Mm -hmm. that the God who has just made this massive statement um, is actually capable of backing it up. And so, and they know it, like they've seen it with their own eyes. And so if ever there should have been belief and obedience, immediate belief and obedience, it should have been at Sinai. Uh, And they say, yes, we will do everything that you have (laughs) told us to do. And you're like, oh, please stop saying more things. You're going to look back and regret, you know. Uh, And then I think the other key thing for us to remember is that when we look at Old Testament stories, our tendency is to ask, how am I like Moses? Or how am I like Aaron? And the best place that we can place ourselves in those stories is to ask, how am I like Israel? Um, The ones that I want to say, you guys are morons, (laughs) like pull it together. And that's usually the seat that I'm sitting in. So why does God have to say there are no other gods? Because the human heart is always looking for something else to worship, but in a particular way. They are not looking, if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, what they don't do 
is get rid of Yahweh and worship Baal. Right. They keep Yahweh and they add Baal. It's Yahweh plus. Yeah, Yahweh plus. That's right. And so if we're asking the question, how does the first commandment hit me today? Then we have to ask, what's my Yahweh plus? Like, what is the thing that I need that if I didn't have it, I would, I would wonder if, if the universe was shifting off of its axis? Um, is it you know, something financial. Uh, I, I think more often than not, I'll speak, I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll out myself in this. For me, it is almost always, um, I don't want anything bad to happen to someone in my family. I can't imagine losing a child. Um, I don't know how I could reconcile that with a good God. Yeah. And I say this as a person who knows it's possible. Yeah. Like I've seen other people do it. But in my most honest moments, I think that is my, that is my God plus uh, fill in the blank. Mm. And we all have something like that. And it will be the work of a lifetime to to continue to keep God as God mm. with no other rivals. Yeah. yeah. Are there any other broadly thing as you look at the, the American church? Um, are there any other things that you think are uh, common idols that we can, uh, again, not even see as idols probably. That's the danger of this kind of mm-hmm. stuff is we don't even realize fully at least or we have a hard time acknowledging in our own minds that we are adding these things to uh, to God in a sense. Any other things come to mind as, as common idols that, that you've observed? Oh yeah, I mean, there's a whole list of them and they all end with ism at the mm. end. So, I mean, one of the ones that's made headlines recently that was only um, talked about minimally in the last, I'd say 10 years or so is Christian nationalism, um, where, where uh, politics become our both and. Mm. I need God and I need, you know, my party or my platform. Um, I think that individualism is another one. I need God and I also need to be really in charge of everything, which obviously these things aren't compatible with one mm. another, but we tell ourselves that maybe they can mm. be. Um, materialism, um, consumerism, um, progressivism. I mean, there's any number yeah. of them that you could could list, just things that we uh, things that we say, oh no, this is this is where the sweet sauce mm-hmm. is. And then also God. But also I can make this kind of, you know, relate to God yeah. in a way that I can, that I can, you know, if God gives me more stuff, then I can honor God we with can, it. We can He's kind like, of baptize those things. Yeah. 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 Huh. So another commandment that I think sometimes Christians can struggle to fully understand, or maybe we have an understanding of it, but it can be a little bit simplistic, is the third commandment. Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe someone's listening right now who they're thinking, well, I'm doing good on that one. That's pretty easy. I don't swear with God's name. Mm-hmm. So therefore, mm-hmm. I got that one down at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that really all this command is about? Oh, man, I wish it were. <laughs> <laughs> but if you start to examine, uh, and I mean, I, I have, um, I know that like there are people who won't even use, and this is fine if this is your conviction, they won't say OMG in a text or they have to say OM gosh Mm -hmm. or something like that because it's so ingrained in them. And I, that's the house I grew up in. Like I seriously thought that if I were to ever say one of those statements that the ceiling would open wide and lightning would just Mm. fry me right on the spot. And it's not a bad impulse to have. We don't want to be flippant. Is that one of the applications of a command Absolutely. I mean, there, you know, these surface applications that we often tick to the bottom 
box on are not wrong. They're just not mm. all. And that's, I think, what Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount is that you can have the mentality of the Pharisee, which is I will do the bare minimum compliance is all that's required. Or you can delight in the law and meditate on it day and night and discover an expansive obedience. And so when we start to look at the expansive obedience to the third word, we begin to think about things like, okay, so don't take his name in vain. Well, what is that? His name. What is the significance of a name in the Bible? And and you look at the way names are used. So like Jacob's name means he supplants or or the deceiver. And then you look at like Nabal. Nabal's name means um, fool. It means perverse fool. And and then there are also positive examples like Joshua, uh, names that meant something um, that were an indication mm. of the character of the one right. who bore them. That's not our, our naming convention no. typically no, in, a, in the United States. It sounds a little fresh and different and uh-huh. looked it up online and it's not very common and I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've never known someone I hated who was named this, <laughs> you know. So uh, And so we arrive at our name naming conventions or we name them after. But sometimes I think the closest we come to this is when we name a child after a a family member who was treasured. And you and you say, oh, you're just like your granddad who you're named. You know, so we want to almost transfer those those character qualities into a future generation. And so when we think about the name of the Lord, what we should understand is that the name of the Lord signifies the character of God and, and, and the sum total of the character of God. So everything that is true about God um, is present in, when we say the name of God. So when the New Testament says that you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're baptized into the character of or according to the character of. Um, when we pray in Jesus' name, mm. we say that like an incantation. Yeah. And actually, I think that's a way that we can use the name of the Lord in vain is if you're just like, I'm just going to rubber stamp the end of the this so that then God will have to do yeah, whatever I right. said in the parts that came before. He'll know that it's I prayed like, right. It's like the, yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. it's like the stamp that gets the, the prayer to God, yeah. but that's all it really does. <laughs> Help us understand that. What is going on when we say in Jesus' name and we pray? Well, I think what we should be thinking is, Lord, according to your character, let this be done. Uh, and and I think that that's not always top of mind for us. Um we can use the name of the Lord in simplistic ways or in magical, you know, magical mm. ways instead of um, in ways that are thinking about this idea of bringing his character to bear. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Why? Because his, the, in, in him, the Godhead was pleased to, to dwell, mm. you know, like the fullness of deity. And so, um, so when it comes to this third command, then the implications become massive because that means that anything that I say, certainly my words, but really, you know, actions speak louder than words, as the saying says, any way in which I misrepresent the character of God as one who bears the image of God uh, could be seen in some way to be breaking the third command. Mm -hmm. I think that it is good to keep the focus on speech. I think it doesn't hurt anything to do that. And it certainly could keep us busy for a lifetime, just trying to obey according to the way that we use our words. Um, But I think you can also sense out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, We would be remiss to not recognize that any speech pattern that is dishonoring to the Lord is pointing us not toward um, speech work that needs to be done so much as toward heart work that needs to be done. Yeah. So in your experience as a Bible teacher, uh, which of the Ten Commandments would you say is most misunderstood? 
Uh, I would say, hmm, oh, you're going to make me narrow it down. Or maybe one that is often <laughs> misunderstood if it's hard to pick one. I think um, probably the one uh, dealing with murder. Hmm. Because it's the one where if we're going to give ourselves a grade, it's usually the one where we're like, okay, I've definitely broken the third command. Mm-hmm. You've convinced me that I haven't fulfilled the first and the second, but I haven't stabbed anybody, yeah. so I'm still yeah. doing okay. It's kind of a um, black and white idea right mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, I don't even know that most people realize that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the yeah. Mount is pointing explicitly to the Decalogue. I think sometimes we don't we don't see that connection. And um, and he's saying, and the reason he's doing it is because he knows he knows how we are, right? And so he starts with the command. He starts with the sixth commandment, and then he follows it right up with the seventh. Mm. Because really, it's those two. When you were saying which one, I'm like, I don't want to choose because those are the ones that we feel are the most measurably we can we can measurably demonstrate that no, I haven't done that. Remind I got us of an the 80. seventh. The seventh is you shall not commit adultery. And so uh, right out of the gate, he he just lights us up on those mm. by saying uh, he says something that is actually a little confusing at first blush. He says, I'm saying to you that you, you may not have murdered someone, but if you have been angry and um, and contemptuous, that's the sense of that word raka. So you, you then you you you're guilty. And then he says with adultery, if you've committed lust, you're guilty. And so what some have drawn from this is that anger is the same thing as murder. Yeah. Or lust is the same thing as adultery. And and that's not true. I do think there is a point at which um, those sins can become so magnified that they can be as damaging as the actual act. But um, if I... You know, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. So it's possible to have that response of anger and then not linger on it and let it turn into the next thing, contempt, uh, which then is the pathway to murder. Mm. Um, But what he's pointing to is he's like, you're looking at the end result and saying, I didn't get there. And I'm telling you, you're already on the path, Mm. which, if you think about it, is exactly what God says to the very first murderer, Cain, in Genesis chapter 4. He says, uh, you better deal with your anger. <laughs> sin is crouching at the yeah, door. Yeah, sin is crouching at the door. Mm-hmm. Mm. He says, why are you angry? And so, uh, and what does Cain do? He asks the question that I think is, un- it, it, well, I, don't, I don't think it, it is. It's underlying the great commandment. He says, am I my brother's keeper? And the great commandment says, and Jesus Christ says, yes. You are. And if you are, then you would guard against anger because anger threatens your brother. Mm. Maybe not in the moment, but it certainly will if Mm. you nurse it. And you know what lust does? Lust threatens your sister. Maybe not in the moment, although lust is certainly something that is a, you know, the second the lingering, it turns from I notice someone is beautiful to I linger on it and I entertain it. And so he's, he's making the appeal that if we would deal with these sins at their root, um, then then maybe we wouldn't have murderers and maybe we wouldn't have adulterers mm. because rather than see people as disposable or consumable, we would see them as made in the image of God. Mm. The fundamental disposition towards the other person is is shared. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, some people, as you kind of said, can take these verses as meaning that there really are no degrees of sin or there's mm-hmm. no difference between mm-hmm. different sins that we might commit. 
Um, but are you, you're kind of saying that's not necessarily how we should read this. No, I think Jesus is using a lot of literary devices, um, which we would recognize in a normal conversation. Yeah. But I think because it's the Bible and it's Jesus, we're like, oh, I'm supposed to just take everything he says at face value, mm-hmm. which gets pretty tricky when you get to the part about dismemberment. Um, but, <laughs> you know, if your right eye offends, you gouge it out. And if your right arm hands offends, you cut it off. Um, and so... You know, if ever there was someone we wanted to read literately, it's going to be it's going to be the words of Jesus because he's he's invested in exploring how does he say things in a way that is memorable mm. and impactful, and so he's employing all kinds. He uses hyperbole, you know, he uses uh, poetry. I mean, he's yeah. he's fluent yeah. in 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 word usage. What would you say to someone who hears that and? To them, they start to get a little bit nervous when someone says that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, and they start to worry that, well, you're just sort of uh, reinterpreting things in a way that maybe better suits your, you know, how you want to view things. You don't want to to take that dismemberment comment. You know, you don't, you aren't willing to go as far as Jesus would actually call us to consider going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, this this idea of uh, taking things uh, in their literary sense mm-hmm. is a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people do want to say that. Um, they think it sounds liberal. It's like, a, you know, that you must have a liberal agenda and you actually don't believe in inerrancy or an inspiration yeah. if you say those kinds of things. I would say that I actually uh, believe that the Holy Spirit chose a medium that abides by certain rules, which um, I would say is he's the origin of as well, mm. um, and then used it in the most effective ways possible. Um, I think that uh, because we feel confused by, um, I don't know why, like, why wouldn't we just read the book that is most important to us according to the same basic assumptions that we would read hmm. other books? Is, is part of it, do you think that it's in doing it that way and acknowledging that being the right way to read scripture, we're sort of acknowledging that there is a level of interpretation that's required, whereas if we could read the Bible as this very straightforward, very plain type of document, mm-hmm. it feels maybe a little bit more uh, easy to grasp and a little bit more uh, easy to nail down rather than having to bring in history and culture mm-hmm. and literary forms that are maybe subject to some some debate. Yes, well, for sure. And I, and I do want to be really quick to emphasize that I am not by any means dismissing a plain reading of the scriptures. Mm-hmm you should be able to open your Bible and read it and receive real help without having received instruction in how to read it. But with that, I think should come a growing curiosity of, aren't there, am I, is there some way I could read this and and glean more from it? Mm. Um, And I think that's why we're given people who have the gift of teaching, right? If the gift of teaching were not needful, it would not be given. And so um, a person who wants to learn the scriptures understands that they are accessible, and yet they might be more accessible with help from those whom the Lord has gifted Mm. to help us to see. Um, And so... It's it's a both and, but I think people I think you're you're getting at it. It's a, they people hear it as an either or. Mm. You mean to tell me that I can't sit down and read my Bible and understand it? I would never say that. Can you understand it more and more cohesively with the help of those who are further along than you are, or who maybe the Lord has gifted in a particular way? Yeah, yeah, you can. And I'm wondering why you wouldn't want that if that's something that the that the has been made available to you through the body of Christ. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting that it can even in some ways betray a misunderstanding of 
the fact that scripture itself has been translated. Most of us are mm-hmm. not reading the original Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And so that we're already depending on uh, people doing hard work of study mm-hmm. and research, uh, helping us to, to read our Bibles in English. Well, and, you know, there's that, that well-worn um, phrase about letting scripture interpret scripture, which that on surface seems like a really simple thing to say. Mm-hmm. But um, to gain the f- level of familiarity with the Bible that then enables you to implement that skill, I believe it's the work of years. We could give ourselves the timeline that we need. I mean, I, the God is not wondering, you know, why you're not hmm. excellent at this yet. Yeah. Like he understands the the learning curve and all of that. But um, like the rest of discipleship, this is a discipline. It is something that we devote ourselves to and, and it does actually require work. And I think that is the biggest disconnect that I can find is that for whatever reason, people have been told that the Bible should require no work to, to be understood. And um, and like all aspects of following Christ, this one too will require us to take up our cross. Mm. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to talk with us a little bit about the Ten Commandments and help us to hopefully understand just a little bit better uh, what God designs for them to do in our lives. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Thanks for having me. That was Jen Wilkin on the Ten Commandments. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, 10 Words to Live By, Delighting in and Doing What God Commands, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a star rating and a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.